0: Good morning, everybody. Come and grab a seat. As John said, we're continuing our series. Who is Jesus? If you haven't been here in previous weeks, we we started um, at the story of the triumphal entry, actually on Palm Sunday, is where we started the story a few weeks back, and we're working through to the end of the Gospel of Luke and then into the Book of Acts, just, just until through to Easter. And today we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 22, it's on page 620 in the Bible's on the chairs if you want to follow along. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you so much that this day we do celebrate you coming as King. And I ask this morning that now as we listen to your voice to us through the Word of God, that we hear the, the very words of God spoken to us through the Bible, through Scripture, I pray that you would, Jesus, you come as King again to us this morning here in Gateway Church here in Paul. Lord, that we would celebrate you, that we'd know you as, as the Lord who is to be worshipped. So I pray you'd speak to us through this passage. You'd help us to understand more, help us to feel more, help us to know more, help us to respond more, help us to, yeah, may we uh, lay our lives down before you, just as the crowd laid their cloaks down before you on that day. Amen. 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 Okay, we're going to read uh, the first half of uh, Luke chapter 22. It says this, now the feasts of unleavened bread drew near which is called the Passover and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put Jesus to death for they feared the people then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot who is of the number of the twelve he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them and they were glad and agreed to give him money So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray Jesus to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? And when he had given thanks, thank you, Father, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercised lordship over them, and those In authority over them, are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table, but I am among you as the one who serves? You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. The uh, back story to this story is where we began our series a few weeks ago in Luke chapter 19, which uh, records the account of Jesus entering into Jerusalem, coming uh, down from the Mount of Olives with, a crowd, with his disciples and with a crowd of other followers and the disciples finding a donkey for him to ride in and the people cheering him as he comes into Jerusalem. And he comes into Jerusalem in triumph, but it's also a place of opposition. And we then get this, the unfolding story over the next sequence of, of kind of unfolding scenes in the Gospel of Luke. of of encounters between Jesus and what we can call the Jerusalem establishment, the the religious leaders of different, often opposing factions, but all of whom are also opposed to Jesus. And the thing that unites them is their opposition to Jesus. And they come to him and they try and trip him up and they bring him difficult questions and they try and catch him out and they try and confuse him. And there's a series of encounters between Jesus and the establishment. And every time they think they've got him, he actually comes out on top in terms of the way that he's able to answer them and in the end to silence them. And then Jesus, once he has silenced those who would oppose him, he issues a series of warnings about what is going to happen to Jerusalem because of the way in which Jerusalem has, while pretending, while appearing to be followers of God and be very religious, actually had rejected God and were rejecting God's son, Jesus himself. There's this conflict, and uh, we also see that there's these different kind of groups. So you've got the establishment who are opposing Jesus and you've got the crowd, you've got the people who seem to be on Jesus' side. And the establishment who are afraid of the people because those in charge always only have, can be in charge as much as the people allow them to be. And the establishment who are afraid of the people and the people kind of protect Jesus from the establishment. And, and so it goes. And then it comes to this point where all these encounters and kind of clashes in the temple have taken place. And it, we're coming towards the end of the story where Today, where we are chronologically today, is where we started the story on Palm Sunday, but we're catching up, we're pushing through to Easter weekend, and this is the Thursday of Easter week that we're up to here. As Jesus and his disciples gather in a furnished upper room in some house and celebrate the Passover together, and we see the unfolding story being revealed of what is going to happen to Jesus Christ. And uh, there's a, a number of kind of vignettes I want to pick out of this story, some different elements of, of this particular story that I think we can learn some things from. The first one is the fickle human heart, the fickle human heart. There is this clash that is presented between the people who are kind of seem to be Behind Jesus at this time, and, and the establishment who are opposed to Jesus. And there's a fickleness about even those who claim to follow him. And we're going to see that in this story how some who claim to be Jesus' followers actually end up betraying him and turn, turning against him. We see that particularly here in this account. With Judas, and uh, in this we see how fickle the human heart can be. And this is something which Jesus has already warned his disciples about. When he stands in the temple and he says what's going to happen to Jerusalem, he also warns his disciples. He says, "You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake." One of the things that Jesus says is that belief in him is is a divisive thing. That putting your trust in Jesus actually causes a division, that Jesus himself causes division. He came as the Prince of Peace, but people oppose him, and people will also oppose those who trust him. And we see this fickleness of heart, particularly in Judas, and it says that Satan entered into Judas. There's a question there of, well, how did that happen? How did did Satan enter into Judas? And, And what does that mean? This is Judas who's been with Jesus as long as all the other disciples. He's been as close to Christ as the other disciples have. And somehow Satan enters into Judas. We're not told exactly, but it seems to have some kind of connection to uh, Judas's greed, that he's someone who's very concerned about the money. We're told that he was keeper of the, of the purse, that they, Jesus and the disciples are kind of a common pot and Judas was the one who looked after that. And he seems to be never so concerned about money. And a lot of the motivation for his betraying of Jesus seems to be the potential of financial reward. And it seems that for Judas, his, his material greed began to outweigh his sense of loyalty and conviction about Jesus. And the thing is, if we ever put anything else in place of Jesus, if we make anything else God, which is what Judas seemed to do with money, then we give opportunity for Satan to enter in. We can think actually we're letting something else good kind of dominate in our lives. For Judas, money looked very good, but actually, he wasn't, really, money wasn't gonna rule. Satan was gonna rule. Satan entered in, and we see this terrible betrayal Of Jesus by Judas. So There's also a contrast, though, between Judas and the other disciples. Judas actively disobeys. He goes off to betray Jesus while Jesus sends Peter and John to sort out arrangements for the Passover meal. And uh, in a story which, increasingly as we go into it, is one of betrayal, there's this kind of uh, comforting, really, picture of Peter and John being obedient, that they go and do what Jesus has said. Now, they also will betray Jesus pretty soon. By the next morning, they will have turned and run as well. But their rejection of Jesus, their betrayal of Jesus is, is very different from that of Judas. Judas's betrayal of Jesus, Jesus is an active, a deliberate betrayal of Jesus, whereas Peter will betray Jesus out of fear. But Peter's heart also is fickle. We also see the fickleness of the human heart in the way that the disciples in this story begin to argue about which of them is the greatest and in doing that they are doing exactly the same thing as the religious establishment that Jesus criticized back in uh, Luke 20 verse 46 Jesus says beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts Jesus is warned about the religious establishment who like to make a show of themselves and here at this moment, this moment, the, the night before Jesus is going to be crucified, the disciples are arguing about which of them is the greatest. They're making exactly the same mistake that the religious establishment did. Their, their hearts are fickle. They've been with Jesus. They've seen what he's done, but still their hearts are fickle. In uh, 1 Corinthians, Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul warns us, he says, Be careful if you feel you're standing strong, lest you fall. And I think for these disciples at this time, I I imagine they felt they were standing strong. They've been with Jesus through the events of the past few days where he had come into Jerusalem in triumph and he had demonstrated his superiority over everybody else in the temple, the very center of the universe for them. And now they're having dinner together. And I guess they're feeling pretty good about how things are looking. They think they're standing firm if you think you're standing firm, you need to be careful lest you fall because the human heart is fickle. And so we see in these different characters the fickleness of the human heart, but the truth is that your heart is fickle too. And my heart is fickle too. Because we're humans. We change. We change with the wind. We change and we don't even realize it. We don't wouldn't wear the same jeans now that we wore 10 years ago, we'd think they look stupid. We're fickle, we change. And Judas was fickle and the disciples were fickle. The human heart is fickle, God alone is constant. He's the one who doesn't change. And this Palm Sunday, what we need to do is not trust in our own hearts because they're fickle. We need to trust in Him who is constant and stand on him who is the rock second kind of vignette we can see from this is the significance of the feast verse one now the feast of unleavened bread drew near which is called the passover these originally had been two kind of separated feasts the feast of unleavened bread which was then followed by the feast of the passover but they've been kind of rolled together so you could use the, the one term uh, for the other but the whole thing was kind of called the passover And this was the most significant time of the year for the Jewish people. The the season of Passover was the moment of national celebration of clearest identity of this is who we are as a people. This This is who we are. We are special. We are different. We are the people of God. Why? Because of the Passover. And what the Passover represents is the moment in Israel's history where having been slaves in Egypt for 400 years, Moses, the greatest leader, the greatest miracle worker that Israel ever had, came and led them out of Egypt into freedom, the mighty moment of the Exodus. It's the Passover. It's the moment when, rather than them being destroyed and held captive by the Egyptians, they were set free. And the story of the Passover is that uh, the people of Israel, in their homes in Egypt, sacrificed lambs and they put blood on the lintels of their door frames in their houses and the destroying angel passed over and brought terrible judgment upon the Egyptians because of the way the Egyptians were disobeying God but did not touch the people of Israel because the blood on the door was a sign that they belonged to God so the lamb paid the price rather than them and the angel of death passed over them and it was a time when they ate unleavened bread because the time of the Exodus was a time of readiness, a time of obedience, it was a time when they had to be ready to go. And so there wasn't time to make the bread and let it rise, it just had to be instant food. And so ever after, the people of Israel were to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover Feast. And this was meant to represent their obedience, their Their readiness to go, their willingness to follow God, to be obedient to him. And it was a sign of their national liberation. It was a sign of we are God's people. We're not under Pharaoh's authority. We're not slaves. We are those who belong to the one true God, the one who is mighty to save. It was a story of them being led out of Egypt, led across the the Red Sea, led into freedom. It's a story of Exodus. It's the high point of the year. And so Jerusalem would have been rammed full of people. There would have been thousands of pilgrims, Jewish pilgrims, who would have come in from the surrounding towns to be in Jerusalem for the feast. And also, the town would have been full of Romans, including the Roman leadership. Now, at this time, the the Roman overlords in, uh, in Judea would normally live on the Mediterranean coast, very sensibly. They'd live in a place called Caesarea on the coast, much nicer. But at the time of the Passover, to be around, they'd come and be in Jerusalem as well. So, Jerusalem is packed. It's packed full of Jewish pilgrims, and it's packed full of Roman leaders. And so this is a kind of a a high-pressure moment in the calendar. It's it's always going to be a slightly kind of, um, it's going to be an emotionally charged time. The people of Israel are going to feel emotionally charged because this is our moment. This time reminds us who we are. And the Roman authorities would have been a bit emotionally charged because this is a time when people might start causing trouble. And of course, this is a moment which is meant to celebrate life. We've been rescued. We've been brought out of slavery. We've come into the promised land. But the religious establishment, rather than celebrating life, are plotting a death. They're trying to work out how they can get rid of Jesus. They're trying to work out how they can bump him off, how they can kill him. They're actually kind of becoming Pharaoh to Jesus' Moses. The roles are kind of reversed. And all that happens has to happen at this point. It's, It's not just coincidence that that the events of what we now call Easter happen at the Passover. Now, it has to happen at this time. Because the Passover was the moment when the Lamb was sacrificed. The Passover is the moment when God led his people to freedom. And Jesus is coming as the one who will be sacrificed, the perfect Lamb of God. Jesus is coming as the one who will lead his people into freedom. It has to be at Passover. And we shouldn't miss the significance of the feasts. As we read our Bibles, we shouldn't miss the significance of these moments. And also we shouldn't miss the significance of what God is doing in the world. Jesus tells us earlier here in Luke that when we see signs of trouble in the world, it's like seeing the leaves come out in the trees. It's a sign that something is about to change. God is at work in the world and God is at work in this feast. Israel's story is a story of freedom of liberation and Jesus is the fulfillment of that. It has to be the Passover that these things happen. A third vignette here is the authority of Jesus. There's a lot going on in this story and I guess for the disciples, they were just seeing what was happening right there, right then. They'd seen the events of the week, and they were now sitting down having a, a, a cozy dinner with Jesus. But they needed to pull back the lens and see the bigger picture of what Jesus was doing. And one thing that we see is the authority of Jesus. We see it just in this strange little account of him sending Peter and John and saying, go and get somebody ready for us to have the Passover. And where, where are we going to do that? And then, Jesus has got it set up. There's going to be somebody carrying a water jar. You're going to follow him. He'll lead you into a house. There'll be a room there that's ready. Do it there. It's a sign that Jesus is an authority. A very similar thing had happened a few days before when Jesus had entered Jerusalem, and he'd said to his disciples, go and find me a donkey. Where are we going to find a donkey? Well, just go to this place, and if they say we, there'll be a donkey there, and you can take it. If anybody asks you, just explain what's going on. It'll be fine. Jesus has authority. And we might look at the um, kind of the random details of our lives. We can get very consumed by the random details of our lives and think that's what life is all about. And we can think that this moment, this thing has happened because of such and such a person. And this instant happens because this thing happened. And it's all about this moment and this, my little worldview. And, and we need to pull the lens further back and see the bigger picture, that actually Jesus is in charge of the bigger picture. And Jesus has authority. Uh, this week on Wednesday, our oldest daughter, Georgie, uh, flew out to North Carolina. Where she's going to spend the next five months. And I was tracking her progress on the flight radar website. And uh, there should be a picture of here. This was her on the tarmac at Heathrow on Wednesday morning, uh, zoomed in on her flight. And, you know, if you, when you get on a plane, that's what you just think about, the one plane that you're on. It's all about that plane. It's how long is it going to take to get through... Uh, Security to get to the plane. How long am I going to have to sit around? How long is the plane going to sit on the tarmac before it's actually allowed to go? How much behind schedule is it going to be when it takes off? Am I going to get the seat that I want? Is there going to be a screaming baby sitting next to me all the way to America? Will the entertainment system work? Why isn't the entertainment system work? Why is somebody hitting the back of my chair? Is there going to be space in the overhead locker for my hand luggage? Will the food be all right? It's all about, that's what it's all about. But if you pull back and see the bigger picture, there are 10,000 planes in the sky at any one time, and perhaps two million people. Somewhere in that mass of planes was my daughter. For me, it was all about that plane and her. But actually, look back, look at as the air traffic controller at Swanwick would look at it, there's 10,000 planes in the air and two million people in the air. And this story is a bit like that, this Easter story, that. There's a a cast of thousands. There's the disciples, there's the establishment, there's the crowds of people, there's the Romans, there's all the unnamed pilgrims who've come into town. There's loads going on. And Jesus is directing the whole thing. Actually, Jesus is in charge of it all. Jesus has authority over the the whole lot. He sees the whole thing and knows what is happening. And this Palm Sunday, we need to again recognize and receive the authority of Jesus Christ he sees it all he's got the wide angle view he knows what's happening he has authority the fourth vignette is to see the importance of perspective we have this extraordinary scene as the disciples are sitting with Jesus eating together that the disciples get into an argument they start to argue and uh, you wonder how how can the how can the disciples be so tinered? how how with with all that's happening how can the disciples be sitting at dinner arguing about which of them is the best <laughs> it just seems a bit crazy but I kind of put yourself in their shoes and you, you can kind of imagine how it's happened because I, I think probably they were feeling pretty good about themselves at this time because of all that had happened in the previous few days. That They had been there with Jesus when he had silenced the Pharisees and he would silenced the Sadducees and the crowds had all been cheering him on. They were there. They were close to him. And so I think they were probably feeling pretty good. And it's kind of a, a, the interesting the way the conversation goes. Jesus, Jesus warns them that one of them is going to betray him. And they start arguing about that. Well, who's that going to be? And it's almost as if they kind of, well, it could be any of us. But who would it be? And they argue about that. And the argument goes from that into arguing about which of them is the best. And you can kind of imagine how it goes. They start saying, well, maybe you'd, maybe you'd let Jesus down. I wouldn't let Jesus down. Hey, when Jesus shut the Sadducees up, I was the one who was standing closest to him. Hey, when, when Jesus is actually ruling this whole thing, when, when, he's, when we see him as king, when his kingdom comes, then... I'm going to be the one who's going to be in charge of this stuff because I'm the one who, it's just obvious that Jesus prefers me. I, I've been closer to him. I spend more time with him than you do. He, he, we talk more deeply than you and him do. And so the conversation goes on about which of them is the greatest. And, and you can't imagine Jesus sitting there kind of watching them and suddenly he interrupts and he corrects them. And he corrects them on, on two, two things. The first thing he corrects them on is that they are, they're thinking far too much just like ordinary men. This is, a, this, is just, this is a kind of debate, it's a kind of argument that just ordinary people have. Because all of us like to look good and to be uh, thought of as good. And, and, and the perspective, their perspective is of that of ordinary men. Who's the best? Who's the top dog? And Jesus says to them, look, you're, you've got this wrong. When my kingdom comes, everything gets turned around. The, the way that my kingdom operates, isn't how ordinary men operate? It's, it's not, you're not meant to be thinking like the scribes who like to walk around, parade around, and be well thought of by everybody. That's not what it's about. Actually, for those who belong to my kingdom, it's not about trying to climb to the top of the heap. It's about rushing to the bottom. It's about serving. Everything gets turned upside down. I, I am king of kings. I'm the one with all authority. I'm the one you say is Lord, but I've come to serve you. That's what Jesus says to them. Everything gets turned up in the kingdom of God. They're thinking like ordinary men, and he wants them to start thinking like Jesus' people. He wants them to start thinking like those who are transformed by him. He wants them to start thinking like those who are going to inherit his kingdom, where everything is different, where rather than the the struggle up the greasy pole, greatness is defined by humility. Everything is different. So they're, they're, he corrects them because they're thinking like ordinary men. And he also corrects them because they're thinking on far too small a scale. They're arguing about which of them is the greatest. And Jesus said, look, guys, you're, you're just missing the enormity of what you are going to receive. You know, know how things are going to be, guys? When my kingdom comes. You're going to sit with me eating and drinking. Not like it is now, but in... The eternal feast of God. He even says, Look, you're going to sit on thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. You're arguing about who's the best in the room, and I'm going to give you the whole world. Your vision is just much too small. And it's easy to kind of be a bit sneering of the disciples and how stupid they were having this argument on the night that Jesus was going to be betrayed. But I wonder how you doing this, because I know how I do on this so often that my perspective is is just wrong. I know too often I think like an ordinary man and my perspective is just too small of what Jesus has for us. I I know it because I know how easily I can kind of be knocked off course by things that happen. I know it because if something negative happens that can have a disproportionate effect on my sense of well-being and self-esteem. It's like uh, I did some teaching at a, at a training base, one of the training bases we run a few weeks ago, and it's about 40 or 50 people in the room, and at the end of those things, people always have to fill in feedback forms. I dread those things. And, and you get the feedback, and the female feedback comes emailed back, and it's pretty bold. And most of it's positive, but you always, in, in a room of 40 or 50 people, there's always going to be a couple of people who just don't like me. It's just how it goes. <laughs> there's probably about 80 or 90 of us here this morning, so there'll be perhaps four or five of you don't like me. The thing, the thing about church is if you don't like the, the pastor, you just go to another church. But uh, if you're sitting in a training block, you don't really have any choice. You just have to sit there for the day and listen to him. And there's always a couple of people who don't like me. And so I always get that bit of negative feedback. And you know, it's always the negative feedback that gets me. I can read all the stuff which is positive, and it just kind of goes, whoosh. One or two people in the group who don't like me and say some mean things. Next three days, I'm kind of blown out. Now, what is that? That is being like the disciples. It's thinking like an ordinary man, and it's having too, thinking on too small a scale. And you know, the disciples were thinking; they, they, their perspective was wrong. And Judas's perspective was wrong—that money would fix his issues—and the establishment's perspective was wrong. That they should get rid of Jesus. They all had a wrong perspective. Actually, the, the way to have the right perspective is to, is to submit to Jesus, it's to recognize his lordship. And that really doesn't mean submit to him. And we don't like that. So that's a dirty word in our culture, submit. But you've got to submit to Jesus if you're going to get things in the right perspective. Fliss, our youngest, has uh, recently got into watching old episodes of The, of the Dog Whisperer with Cesar Milan. I'd never seen it before, but she's found some random TV channel where they run it all the time. And it is pretty compelling. We've got a couple of dogs that have kind of a vested interest. Um, and Grace has been trying to exercise all her Cesar Milan tricks on the dogs now, doing the dog whisperer stuff. Um, but I caught a bit the other week, which is, he said something which really stuck with me. He, he said, submission isn't a negative thing. It means you're putting yourself in a position where you can listen. And that's what we need to do this Palm Sunday. We need to be submitted to Jesus so that we listen to him. And the disciples, they were with him, but they weren't listening. And Judas had been with him, and he didn't listen. And the establishment had heard Jesus, and they didn't listen. And if you don't listen, if you don't submit to him, everything is going to be out of perspective. And then, last vignette is the new covenant. Hallelujah. This, this story is about the last supper, and I guess it was a, a kind of a bittersweet moment. as Jesus and his closest friends sitting and eating together, and that always feels good. But there's, for Jesus, certainly there must have been a bitterness around it as well, because he knows what's coming next. It's also much more than that. It's more than just a bittersweet dinner with friends. It's a moment of inauguration. It's a moment of commissioning. And we see that first because there in verse 14, the scripture calls the disciples apostles. And you can easily skip over that, but it's significant. Normally it talks about the 12, talks about the disciples. That verse, apostles. Now apostles means sent ones and what is about to happen is that this is not going to be the disciples finest hour they're about to leave dinner they're about to go out to the Mount of Olives where Jesus will pray and rather than them praying they're going to fall asleep and then people are going to come and arrest Jesus and they're all going to run away it's not going to be their finest hour but at this very point they are described as apostles sent ones And that's because this is a moment of commissioning. It's a moment of inauguration. They are going to be sent out into the world with the message of Jesus Christ. The next few hours are going to be bad ones, but they're going to get over that And after Easter weekend and after Pentecost, they are going to be apostles. They're going to be sent to the world with the message of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says to them, I'm not going to do this again. I'm not going to eat this bread and drink this wine again until my kingdom comes. This is a moment, Jesus is saying, where everything is going to change. Suddenly, everything is accelerating. Everything is going to change at this moment. The old covenant is going to be swept away. There's going to be a new covenant which comes. The old covenant was brought by Moses. It was a covenant given to the people of Israel by God through Moses when he brought them out of Egypt in the great exodus. This is how you're to live. This is what it means to be the people of God. Jesus says that's going to be swept away and there's going to be a new covenant. And you're going to be apostles of it. And uh, the reference there is Jeremiah 31, the promise of the new covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. It's not going to be like that covenant. The covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord The next few hours are not going to be your finest moments. And the next few days are going to be brutal. I'm going to be put on trial. I'm going to be tortured. I'm going to be killed. But the kingdom of God is coming. The new covenant is coming. And so he says, I'm not going to eat this again until my kingdom comes. I'm not going to eat this again until everything is changed. And after the resurrection, the disciples would get together and eat and drink together again in remembrance of what Christ had done. And we, the church, we get together and we take the bread and we take the wine. And as we do this, we participate in Christ's death and resurrection. And we anticipate all that is coming. We anticipate the moment when Christ comes again for his people, for his church, and we will eat with him in the banquet of the ages. We'll feast with him. And so we eat this in anticipation, and we eat it in participation, because we believe that we are now members of the new covenant, that God's law and will is written on our hearts, that it's no longer an or kind of suit of armor which we have to kind of strap on to get us to behave in the right way. But no, when we come to Jesus, we're transformed from inside. We're born again. We're made new. And so as we take the bread and the wine, we're participating with Jesus in this new covenant, in anticipation of his return and the kingdom being shown in all its glory. We're participating in life. a death was about to happen the execution of Jesus Christ, but that death was in order that life might burst forth. And as we take the bread and the wine, we're participating in the life of Christ. We're participating in God's life made real in us. And so we do it in faith. We come in faith to Jesus Christ, faith that this new covenant is real and has been given to us, that we have access to God. Palm Sunday, Jesus... Was welcomed into Jerusalem. But more significant than the welcome of the crowds was Jesus coming to the crowds, coming to us that we might be welcomed by God. And as we take the bread and the wine, it's a statement of faith that I'm received by God, I'm welcomed by Him, that the way to God has been thrown open by Jesus Christ, by his death and resurrection. I'm a member of this new covenant people. I belong to the people of God. There's a greater exodus. There's been a greater Passover. There's one who is greater than Moses. It's Jesus, the King. He's come and is coming and welcomes us into his family and into his presence and into life forevermore. Amen. Happy Palm Sunday. Let's stand and pray. And uh, Grace and I are going to head down to 502. Let's stand together and I'll lead us in prayer. Jesus, thank you for this moment of celebration that the King has come and opened the way to God for us. And I pray for us, Jesus, that we wouldn't think like ordinary men and we wouldn't have too small a vision of what you're doing but Jesus you'd give us this right perspective and we'd see your authority and we'd submit to you and we'd fellowship with you in anticipation and participation of all that is ours well thank you for the triumph of the cross well thank you for this Easter season thank you for what it represents for what it means life life now and forevermore in the presence of God hallelujah and amen